Is Christianity relevant for the here and now of our life? Does it address the problems that you and I face in our present? Or does its main focus and advantage address only our future following death? Most of us are familiar with the idea of heaven. The Christian faith promises heaven to its followers, and that is an awesome thing to look forward to. What does the Christian faith offer for our present life, though? What about today and tomorrow and the day after that? What about the times when the kids have pushed you to the point of insanity? What about the unanticipated income tax bill that comes due and it overwhelms you? What about the deep heartfelt frustration that we can experience in just trying to live with ourselves in this life? What about all of the many difficulties and heartbreaks and disappointments that we face? Does the Christian faith have anything to offer us? And the answer is yes. Yes, Jesus Christ has not only obtained for us a glorious future with him in paradise, but he became like us in every way so that he can help us in our time of need now. That's going to be what the passage talks about today. In our study of the book of Hebrews so far, just to kind of catch us up and review what we've seen so far, we looked at the introductory statements that the author makes, which tell us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that preceded him and is superior to all of it. Then through comparison, the author points out the superiority of the Son, Jesus Christ, over angels who were the administrators of the old covenant relationship between God and people given through Moses. In the first four verses of chapter 2, the author then, again through comparison with the old covenant, warns us to pay careful attention to this great salvation, he calls it, that's now offered to us through Jesus Christ. And then in the remaining verses of chapter 2, the author makes two important points regarding this great salvation. First, the destiny of saved and redeemed people is going to be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Glory. God considers us to be part of the same family as Jesus, and so we are co-heirs with Jesus. We will inherit all that Jesus also inherits. What he has is also ours. And then second, the glory that we are destined to for is a result of the voluntary humiliation, suffering, and death of Jesus. He has blazed the trail and done the work for us. He has suffered for us and with us. He has put on our skin, and walked in our shoes. He's faced our difficulties and our fears and our enemies and has overcome and defeated them for us. And because he became what we are, he's able to help us not only to enter glory in the future, but to overcome what we face in the present. Now, in our last study, we focused on the first point, concentrating on our destiny. We talked about what God originally intended for us, what we have become as a result of our sin and being separated from God. And we talked about 
the plans God has for redeemed people, that we are destined for glory. You might remember that I used the fairy tale of the frog prince to illustrate this. Once upon a time in a kingdom far away, there was a handsome young prince who, because he chose to ignore the good advice of his parents, got himself into some serious trouble with a wicked witch. She cast a spell on him, turning him into a frog, and the only way that the spell could be broken was for a beautiful maiden to fall in love with him as a frog and then to kiss him, which would then turn him back into a prince. Well, the frog suffered through attempt after attempt, trying to convince beautiful maidens that although he looked like a frog, he was really a handsome prince underneath this green, slimy skin and bugged out eyes. There was little left of the prince's former glory that could be seen. It had been lost and obscured, but he was destined for a new and better glory if a rescuer could be found. Well, we too were once royalty, princes and princesses of the king, and we too have been turned into frogs, stripped of the glory and the majesty that we once enjoyed. We have lost our position and our authority and are now only overseers of a dirty little pond on the edge of the great kingdom that we were once destined to be rulers over. But rather than us having to convince a beautiful maiden to fall in love with us and kiss us to break the evil spell, the king himself has pursued us. He sought us out and become a frog himself to break the evil spell for us and is going to give us a new and a better glory. Well, today we're going to focus our attention on the second point concerning what Jesus Christ has done to bring us into glory and to offer us real help in our present struggles. Or, to refer back to the fairy tale, we're going to talk about the king becoming a frog to rescue us. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin again in verse 9. It says, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It says, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. As we were shown in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is superior to angels, but he became lower than the angels for a little while, it tells us here, becoming like us, who were made a little lower than the angels, as it tells us in verse 7. The fact that Jesus was a real human being is an important point for the writer of Hebrews, and also for us. See, if Jesus were less than a human, he wouldn't be adequate to meet our needs. The, annual, the animal sacrifices under the Old Covenant through Moses were not adequate to remove our guilt before God and clear our conscience. They didn't provide a lasting and permanent cleansing from sin. Animal sacrifices had to be offered over and over again under the Old Covenant. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant had no power to change us inside, making us new, giving us a new nature. 
And the same is true of all forms of asceticism and religious ritual and various other ways that people try to quiet their guilty conscience. We need a real supernatural change at the core of our being. We don't need to be simple. We don't need to simply learn how to be nicer and better behaved people. We need to be changed. We need the life of Jesus Christ in us. Now, if Jesus, being God, had not descended into the depths of humanness, then in our minds he would not be relevant for us. He would be too remote for us. In our minds, we would lack a certain kind of under, he would lack a certain kind of understanding and compassion or empathy for our condition as human beings. We would see him as disconnected, a terrifying deity with no real interest in our lives. But it says, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That word taste, I want to talk about that for a minute. See, it's a descriptive expression, but it doesn't have the same meaning that it often is thought of in our culture and time, in which taste means to try a little sample of something. Give me a taste of that. That's not what it means here. Instead, here the word taste, it means to experience the full measure of something in all of its variations and extents. In the case of Jesus tasting death, he experienced death in all of its horror and blackness and pain. He drank the full cup of death's awfulness for us. In verse 9, the author begins to build his case that Jesus is a genuine member of the human family. He is one of us and so is able to fully understand us and care about us. And at the same time, Jesus is also making us into members of God's family, making us his brothers and sisters on a deeper level than mere human relationships. Jesus is that unique one who stands in the gap between God and humanity. He shares the blood line and the ancestry of both the human family and the God family, so to speak enabling him to reconcile us and create a new kind of relationship between us and God and create a new kind of life in us, born of the Spirit of God. Verse 10, it says here, in, be, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God do this. In other words, it was consistent and in agreement with God's character and personality and attributes and purposes that he sent his son to be our savior, subjecting him to suffering and death. We, we didn't talk God into sending his son Jesus for us to live and die for us. We, we didn't earn it. We didn't guilt him into it. We didn't manipulate him in some way. We didn't compel him to do it. He did it by his own choice. He was compelled by his own great love for us. It says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, the plan of God is to bring us to glory. We talked about this last time some too. The mission of Jesus Christ in becoming a human being was 
to do just that, to bring us to glory. He is making us into the glorified children of God. We are going to fully realize his very best intentions for us. Consider that God's intention for you is glory. That's what he wants for you. Let's not sell ourselves short by pursuing lesser things. Give your all to Jesus Christ, knowing that his purpose and intention for you is glory. One commentator says, glory is the splendor of ultimate salvation. He's called the pioneer of our salvation. Some of the other English translations translate the Greek as the founder of their salvation, the author of their salvation, the captain of their salvation. Jesus is the one who leads the way and breaks the trail, the one who originates and creates our salvation. The the pioneer is the one who first explores and he opens up the way, the, the one who goes out ahead of the rest of the group and chooses the best route and to blast through the obstacles that might be there, creating a path for the others to follow. Hebrews 6.20 says that Jesus went before us as a forerunner, entering the inner sanctuary of God's holy presence on our behalf. Jesus has preceded us into glory, and he will lead us into glory. An author is one who creates or originates a work for others to enjoy. Well, Jesus is the author of our salvation. He has created the way of salvation for us. He's the one who has done the work which we now enjoy the fruits of. It says he was made perfect through what was suffered. That Greek word perfect can also be translated complete, meaning then having reached the intended goal through suffering. And this is closer to the meaning here. Through his suffering as a human being, Jesus has become qualified to be the Savior for his people. There was no moral imperfection in Jesus. It wasn't that he needed to become morally perfect. He was already perfect. But he lived a human life in order to become an effective pioneer, founder, author of our salvation. So if we were to carry this idea of Jesus being the pioneer or the founder of our salvation a little further, let's imagine a group of covered wagons assembled to make a journey into the promised land of the unknown west over the vast and forbidding Rocky Mountains. You guys remember your history classes back in grade school? The Oregon Trail. Maybe you actually played that video game, that little computer game back in the day. If you did, it definitely dates you, right? But One of the most important things to do to ensure success for our journey is to find a qualified scout to lead the wagon train on this long and difficult journey. They need to find someone who has successfully taken this same journey before and is familiar with the territory, someone who knows the best way to go, someone who knows the danger spots to avoid and the the best places for rest and refreshment along the way. Well, Jesus is our scout. He's made the difficult journey himself. He knows 
where to go and how to get there, and he can lead us successfully to our destination. The Lord Jesus is all-knowing in his divinity, but in becoming a human being and suffering as a human being, he identified with us in a way that only that experience could have provided. He's able to sympathize with us in our difficulties in a uniquely personal way because he himself has suffered through these same difficulties. Not only that, but he has demonstrated to us in a very tangible way his incomprehensible commitment to us and desire to know us. We would find it much harder to believe that God loves us and cares about us if he simply pulled the clouds back and just says, Hey, I love you, man. Really? Instead, he left his glory and privilege and comfort and he came down and he walked among us, lived among us, suffered among us, died among us as a human being so that we can know that he really, really does love us. Verse 11, it says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are being made holy are of the same family. The, the author of Hebrews adds further support here for his argument that Jesus is that unique one who has become what we are so that we can become what he is. Jesus is the one who sacrifices, I mean, who sanctifies us or makes us holy. We are the ones that are being sanctified, the ones who are being made holy. We are one with Jesus, deeply, intimately connected with him as from one source, part of the same family, being of one origin from the Father. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and notice what is said about how we become holy? The understanding that a lot of people have about how we become holy is by being a good person. The people that are often thought of as holy are very good, the best behaving, the most generous, the most caring people. Interestingly, though, you know, if we were to ask some of those people that we think are holy, if they think they're holy, they would tell us that they're not holy. Mother Teresa, for example, someone who was thought to be holy by most people, she didn't think she was holy in herself because of her hard work and good behavior. Why? Because she lived with herself. She knew the truth about her own heart. None of us are truly good enough to be holy on our own merits. Jesus Christ makes us holy. He gives us his righteousness, his holiness, when we put our trust in him as our Savior. We need his holiness to be given to us because our self-generated holiness is not good enough. 
We trust in Jesus, not ourselves, to become holy. And it says, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not reluctant or embarrassed to have himself identified with us. You know that awkward friend, now, don't take offense here, but you know that awkward friend that wants to hang out with you, but you really don't enjoy being with that person, and you're kind of embarrassed to be seen with them because it brings down your cool. It damages your reputation to even be with this person. That's how it ought to be for Jesus to be seen with us. Because it doesn't help his reputation to be seen with you and me. As hard as it is for me to have to tell you that, we're his awkward friends. But here's the amazing thing. That's not the way Jesus feels about us. He's not ashamed to call you and me his brothers and sisters. He's not embarrassed to be with us because he loves us. and He's making us like himself, holy children of God. Verse 12. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Verse 12 is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. Do you you remember, we talked about this a little bit ago. In that time and culture, a name was more than just a label or an an identifier. Jesus is not simply declaring the label that's used to refer to God. He's declaring the very character and person of God when he declares his name. In verse 13, it's, it's a quotation of Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. And the main point that the author is making here in quoting these scriptures is again to point out that Jesus was part of the human family that he's making us into children of God. We are called his brothers and sisters. We're called the assembly. We're called the children. All words of relationship here. And the point being made in this, dec- in this quotation when he says, I will put my trust in him, is that Jesus chose to live his life as a human being with the same limits that you and I live our lives with as human beings. He had to put his trust in God the Father. He knows what it's like then to live a life of trusting in God and living by faith. One commentator puts it this way, Jesus is so much a man that he too must trust God. Jesus didn't live with the luxuries that could have been his as God. He didn't bend time and space to instantly appear where he wanted or needed to be, for example. He walked from place to place, just like us. He got hungry. He got tired. He faced temptations as a human being. He experienced betrayal 
and rejection and mocking and bullying and torture and death as a human being. 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He became a flesh and blood human being so that through his death as a human being he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, the devil, and free us from death. Jesus Christ has removed the threat of judgment and wrath for his people. And I think the best summary statement of these verses that I can think of is the title of a book by the Puritan author John Owen. The title of the book was The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. 16. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Jesus didn't become an angel. He became a human being because it wasn't angels who needed his help. Humans are in need of salvation, not angels. And so he became one of us. Taking this further, someone said, if our greatest need had not, I mean, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He might become a, become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. We'll be talking more about the priestly ministry of Jesus in coming studies as we get further into the letter of Hebrews. But at this point, I want to say the essential job of the priest is to represent the people before God. Jesus represents you and me before God as our priest. And two words used to describe this priestly ministry of Jesus here are merciful and faithful. Merciful. Jesus is merciful toward us. He extends mercy to us. His humanness has given him a special kind of mercy for us. He knows what it's like to be one of us because he is one of us. He's faithful. He faithfully carries out his work as priest on our behalf, and he is Faithful, too, in the sense that we can always rely on him as one who will never let us down as a priest. It says, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus carries out a very unique role for us as both our priest and also the sacrifice that the priest offers to God on our behalf.
Making atonement means to appease the offended one in order to regain their goodwill. And in this case, the offended one is God, and the appeasement was accomplished by Jesus giving his own sinless life in exchange for ours. In the last verse of this chapter, it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to help us through every difficulty, temptation, trial, and test that we face because he himself has faced these same things. He truly knows what it means to suffer as a human being because he has suffered as a human being. We can feel like nobody understands us. We can feel alone in our struggles in this world. When we try to share our heart with another and explain what we're feeling, it it can be frustrating because even if they empathize with us, they can't really know what we're feeling. And we can tell sometimes by the way they will respond, it's like, that's not really it. They can't really experience it with us or go through it with us or carry the weight of it with us. Proverbs 14.10 says, Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Getting across that that idea of the, the loneliness of the heart. But there's one who does know exactly what we're feeling, who understands us fully, who can really share the weight of our heartbreak and struggle, Jesus Christ. And because he's God, he can really read our mind and know what we're feeling to the full extent of all of that. Because he lived the life of a human being, he can fully empathize with us. Because he's God, he can turn even the awful things in our life into something that produces good and glory, ultimately. So in closing this morning, you and I have a God who genuinely cares about us. In fact, he cares so much about us that he stepped down from his majestic throne in heaven, humbling himself, becoming a human being, living the same life experiences that you and I live, suffering the same pain, facing the same temptations and trials and difficulties that you and I face. Why? Because he's some kind of cosmic thrill seeker? No. He did it because he loves us. And he was unwilling to abandon us to our fate. Our God has not merely promised us a glorious future, but he has also promised to help us now as we walk in this life on our journey toward that glorious future waiting for us. He loves you. He really, really does.